Welcome to Ask the Therapist, a podcast for everyone who's fascinated about how our minds work, mental health and all things therapy. Ask the Therapist is hosted by me, Sarah Rees, a mental health nurse, cognitive behavioural therapist and author of the CBT Journal. I've over 20 years experience of working in the field of mental health and I hope to educate, entertain and simplify all things mental health and therapy. So sit back and enjoy the episode. Hello to Ask the Therapist and I'm really excited to welcome Dan Newdale today. We're Twitter friends, aren't we, Dan? Yeah, that's right, yeah. We met last year kind of through Twitter and I reached out to Dan and came on your podcast, which is Know Yourself. I can highly recommend that podcast. It's another podcast talking about mental health. So I went on your podcast last November and now you're returning the favour and coming on to my podcast. I feel very (laughs) lucky to have you here. Welcome, Dan. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. That podcast that we did, it's funny, we were just talking. I was listening to the episode and you did such a great job. You did such a great job explaining, you know, about CBT, anxiety, uh, EMDR. You know, you're a really great guest and you're such a lovely person as well. I just, you know, it was a real pleasure having you on. I was so excited when I found out that you were having a podcast. You know, I was really humbled when you asked me to come on. And, you know, it's just, yeah, absolute pleasure being here. I think you're a lovely lady. Oh, thank you, Dan. That's lovely. So, obviously, I'm a bit nervous today because I'm new to all this podcasting and you're an expert podcaster. So I've done a bit of digging around and I've picked up some tips and tricks. So my first question is, if you were going to write a biography, what would your chapter one be? And for anybody who's not heard Dan's podcast, you have to go and listen to it. But that's his first question. And I thought... (laughs) He needs to answer this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, thank you very much. And yeah, it's it's a great first question to ask. My chapter one. I'm half tempted to go back to like the sort of origin story. Uh, well, yeah, actually, I think I think that's important. So my, my chapter one would really be about life, you know, early life, like in my teens, really. Because, you know, when I was 16, I was kind of like a happy go lucky guy and I didn't really think that I had any problems or you know anything I thought I pretty much had life figured out and um yeah one sort of sunny day it was the summer of I think it would have been 2009 and I was getting ready to do my GCSEs and I was chaperoning a woman like someone who was in my I think she was in my high school we were kind of out on like sort of like a date I guess because I thought I was a bit of a ladies' man, I think. <laughs> we were walking through uh, Droitwich uh, Park, uh, Vines Park, and um, across the canal, as we were walking, adjacent to us, there were these kids, and they were kind of, like, shouting some abuse, and I didn't even know whether it was us they were talking to or not. I was just very much like, oh, don't worry about it, just, you know, just ignore them. Let's yeah. just keep walking. You know, we got to the end of the canal where it meets like the other side where there's a bridge so our two paths could meet and you know one of the kids out of the group came up to me and basically just wanted to start a fight with me and I was like I don't really want to do this and I don't understand what your problem is so I'm just going to walk away so as I like turned to walk away I just felt this like fist hit my face 
and then it all just kind of started really it was all kind of a bit of a blur and I just remember lots of like punches and kicks and I was just on the floor and then I think someone said like oh we should get out of here sort of thing and I got up and I I only lived five minutes away from the park and I just got up and ran home like I had all this adrenaline in my body I just ran all the way home and um I got in yeah. And I just remember saying to my mum, I've just been like, someone's just kicked the shit out of me. And I just didn't really feel anything like emotionally. I just uh, felt exactly. a little bit numb. And yeah, like they looked at my face because they thought it might, you know, they might have broken my cheek and it was fine. So, you know, physically there was nothing wrong with me, but yeah. um, sort of like emotionally and uh, mentally there was probably lasting effects so it, it meant that I spent the sort of next like six months to I would say a year in like a really sort of deep uh, dark depression and I don't really remember much from that time because I just remember um, not wanting to go outside and you know I had a lot of family uh, members say like oh just you know go back outside you'll be you'll be fine like you know kind of that exposure therapy type thing yeah, it sounds like it really shot shook your view of the world that you kind of I know when we do work with post-traumatic stress kind of say before a trauma you have a view of the world being very safe and that people are okay and generally people are good and when something like that happens it changes all your belief system and what you kind of how you perceived it is that the world's actually dangerous and people are unpredictable and dangerous and and quite rightly it must it would be terrifying to go out yeah that's a that's a really good observation because that's exactly what happened it was like everything had been flipped on its head I no longer had that happy-go-lucky attitude because I was like I was like I can't trust anyone I can't I can't ever have that happen again it'd be a disaster it'd be the worst thing ever if that was to happen again so the day after I'd been assaulted, you know, everyone was telling me, just go back outside, you'll be fine. I was out fishing in Vines Park. So I'm back near the scene of the crime, as it were. Yeah. I'm fishing with my stepdad at the time. And I remember there was this there was this guy walking on the path. And I turned around and looked and I did a double take and absolutely froze on the spot like a statue because I saw the guy that literally like kicked the crap out of me like the day before. Actually him. Yeah, it was actually him. The terror I felt, it was like an out of body experience. Yeah. I was just looking at myself like planted on this spot and it was just sheer like terror that I felt. And um I think that really that experience really solidified the feelings that I probably would have had anyway. I think it it reinforces like yeah don't trust anyone you can't go outside everyone's out to get you gosh uh, yeah so had that not happened you were on this you you know braved it and you're starting kind of the exposure work weren't you but that just compounded everything a hundred percent yeah that was the first time I felt like the physical symptoms as yeah. well as the mental ones like my hands went from like bone dry to like dripping wet in seconds and it felt like I had like sort of electricity in my veins and I felt like I had like a fire it like a really like yeah like a burning sensation in my stomach like I, I almost feel it now like I'm like 
you just feel like you've got to get out of there. You're like, I've got to, I've got to go. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, fight or flight, I guess. Yeah. yeah, we're absolutely built for survival. And I think what you experienced it is that how built we for survival we are. So when you were met with your that threat, everything in your body says, get out of there so powerfully. And that's why our emotional brain is so much more powerful than our logical brain, you know. And that's what you fully experienced, isn't it? And it's interesting, you can still almost feel that now. Yeah, yeah, like I could almost like tap into it if I um describe it well enough and feel it in in like a, a in a comfortable way. I it's re- very rare that I get uh, triggered now, but um yeah, it it was really from that day. I really struggled to go out in public places. I really struggled with buses and trains, like anywhere where there was a lot of people because I'd be scanning everyone and anyone that I thought looks dodgy and whatever that meant, I have no idea, but anyone who looked like they were a threat yeah, was, yeah. it just sent this, you know, uh, this thing inside of me that I didn't understand like into overdrive. The sad part is I thought that everyone I could see walking around was fine and it was just me. I was like broken. I felt like the mold had been broken with me in like a bad way and I was just like a bad egg or you know something like that because I just didn't understand it I just no. didn't did you so you had no idea you had post-traumatic stress you just yeah absolutely zero idea it just progressively got worse over time as well That's terrifying isn't it because if, if you feel broken it's like what does that mean for the rest of your life it's not it's terrifying now and for the rest of your life it must have been absolutely terrifying yeah, it, it was safe to say my self-esteem and confidence was crushed, you know, in in ways that I thought weren't recoverable. You know, I just I, I sort of fell into the role of a victim and um, that had ramifications for, you know, my personal life with my family. And it also had ramifications in other areas of my life, because when you've got this kind of behavior, you you adapt to it. So you're at a party, for example, and you've been there like half an hour and then you've just got to skip out and go because, you know, there's just something wrong and, you know, you're not feeling it and your body, everything in your mind and body is telling you to get out of there. And it's just a shame because you can't, I didn't feel as though I could enjoy anything. And then my freedom was also in jeopardy, like constantly in, in my mind anyway. It wasn't actually, but... This is the reality we kind of dictate to ourselves. Feels completely 100% real, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, that was it. Like, getting a bus and getting the train, it wasn't an option. Like, unless I was desperate. And even then, it was it was really questionable as to whether it happened or not. So then it's like, you know, physically then I'm limited to walking because I couldn't drive. And you're like, gosh, like, <laughs> where can I go? <laughs> what can I do? So, like... You know, my social uh, options are very limited. Like, I've got friends that want to start going on holidays. You know, they want to start doing more exciting things like parties and stuff like that. I mean, before, you know, I would have been well up for that sort of thing. But, like, I just, there was part of me that just couldn't handle that, couldn't process that. Did you tell your friends what had happened or was there a lot of shame around it? No, I didn't. I didn't tell them. I felt I felt like I was uh, a liability and uh, yeah, like a letdown. So like oh. I did feel a great deal of shame because I just felt bad all the time. Like, you know, we'd we'd go out to Birmingham, 
you know, city centre, for example, which is like, you know, it's a bit of a treat for people who live in Droitwich because we're we're quite like a small market town here. So yeah. to go to Birmingham, it's like a day trip sort of thing. And, you know, you you go shopping and that sort of thing. And it would be like five minutes after getting there. I'm like, I've got to go. Like, sorry. Like, you know, I, I've literally I'm going home. And they're like, what the hell? And, you know, you're trying to explain and you, you're trying to make stuff up because you don't want to say the real reason. Or you stay and, you know, you carry on throughout the day, but, like, you're not there because you're just sweating and thinking about, like, all the things that could go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So Sounds so powerful. Yeah. It was just one of the most challenging things to, like, (laughs) manoeuvre around. What was kind of the next step? What did you go into therapy then? Or is that why you hadn't started having therapy? Or so that kind of went on for about four years that is gosh a long time it's a long time out of your childhood isn't it yeah you know I mean like I say it kind of progressively got worse I went to sixth form the high school that I was at I went to the same sixth form there sort of built into the on top of the high school and um it just made my symptoms worse and I just escalated really it was in my second year of like college when I started really feeling like suicidal I would say I was just like in a getting into a really dark place you know at that time as well I had gotten myself into quite a lot of debt so the transition between college and then I kind of went into an apprenticeship uh, after college because I failed to get into university which is mostly down because I'm I'm not really an academic person, so... But you didn't yeah. have the opportunity. You were really struggling, weren't you, in those latter years, for four years of your academic career. You were unwell. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I do sit and think sometimes, like, how things would have been. Because my attendance was so poor because I just had this massive anxiety about leaving sixth form at 20 past three with everyone else. And there being this massive crowd. So as the day went on, I'd get more and more anxious and more and more terrified because I didn't want the bell to ring. And then there's this sudden rush of people and I just couldn't. So I just left. And, and I started just tragedy that there's so many people around you as well. It sounds like, I mean, I'd hope that teachers and mental health is a lot more out there and people are a lot more informed, but it sounds like people weren't spotting this with you. I think um, some of my teachers, I think they just thought I was a bit of a loser. And like a lot of my classes, like, you know, I did English language. I was the only guy that were all girls. And I think it was just, oh, he's the guy that turns up late or he's the guy that leaves early and or skips class. It very much felt like that. I've spoken to people since and, um, you know, there was a girl that used to sit next to me mm-hmm. and we've kind of, like, gone out for coffee and stuff and she said, like, well, I was suffering with stuff at the same time as you. Mm-hmm. And um, it was amazing how we both didn't know each other were going through things. It was, just look around and think everybody else is doing okay don't we yeah from from there I, I went into my apprenticeship and I was really starting to accrue um a large amount of debt a lot of it was down to covering up my illness or yeah I wondered if it was kind of part of being unwell that you were kind of getting into the debt 
I felt like um, I had to get taxis everywhere because, you know, public transport. I mean, where I was doing my apprenticeship, it didn't really help me because it was quite a remote place. But I mean, I picked the apprenticeship. So part of it's, you know, it's me. But like, it was a very small village where uh, my apprenticeship was. And, you know, there were buses that ran like twice a day. So I couldn't get a bus there, even if I wanted to, which I wouldn't have done. You know, it was either that or cycling or, you know, I just I ended up getting taxis because it felt like the safest thing. Yeah. But then I started getting taxis everywhere. So, like, if I needed to go to the shops, I'd get a taxi. Mm -hmm. Like, if I needed to visit visit someone across the other side of town, I'd get a taxi because it was easier than walking and potentially just freaking out, like, over something. Yeah, yeah. So it was a, what we'd call in CBT a safety behaviour. Have you heard of that? I haven't, no, no. So a safety behaviour in anxiety or post-traumatic stress is something you do to keep yourself feeling safe. But the problem is that it becomes part of the problem. So it works initially. You get a taxi, you don't experience the anxiety, but you're not learning to tolerate the anxiety. You're not doing the exposure. So the safety behaviour becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And before you know it, you're taking taxis everywhere. So it work, it helps in the short term, but it becomes problematic in the long term. Anything we do to kind of um, not experience distress or anxiety as a safety behaviour, sometimes, you know, it can be useful in, um, in a smaller way if it gets you into the situation of um, that's causing the anxiety. You know, like if you started using a bus and always took a friend with you, that might have kept you going on the buses but having your friend there would have been the safety behaviour and over time hopefully the friend wouldn't need to be there. So safety behaviours, when we look at post-traumatic stress and anxiety, we help people identify what they're doing to keep themselves safe and then start reducing them in a very gradual way and then you, experience, you have to start tolerating the distress or the um, the anxiety because safety behaviours stop you learning that actually the buses aren't that dangerous but when yes. you're avoiding them, they stay really, really dangerous. You have to teach your threat, the amygdala in your brain that um, buses aren't dangerous and social situations aren't dangerous. And the only way to do that is by keeping in them without an experience in them. But this is how our brain works. It's not our fault. You know, you're programmed to avoid danger because we're programmed for survival. And as you explained it so well, how physically powerful our survival system feels in our body I mean it's totally mm. overwhelming isn't it so this isn't easy to do at all so you coped in the best way you could yeah and that's that's really great that um I've kind of got a label for it now um thank you yeah like I was definitely 100% doing that mm. like masking the problem and unfortunately like I was earning like 500 quid a month like as an apprentice you know that's that's what it is you know you learn on the job and you get paid a, a low wage you know because it's you know it's not like you you're not full-time employed yet you know it's not your proper job yet and that's okay but I was living this lifestyle that I couldn't keep up with you know so then I turned to payday loans I mean they were exploding at the time you know like Wonga, it was like quick quid. It was before they were regulated in any way as well. So they were just giving out loans left, right, and center. I was picking them up, <laughs> you know. Yeah. 
at one time I had about six or seven different providers that I was with because it's it's like a rolling stone because what happens is month one I remember exactly what it was that started it I needed a new pair of trousers and I needed to get my mum a birthday present and I didn't want to admit to myself and to anyone else that I couldn't afford it because you know I was ashamed of having to get taxis everywhere I was ashamed you know of a lot of different things so I didn't want to succumb to that shame so that's when I got my first loan it relieves everything straight away I guess doesn't it you makes you feel in control again in the short term but then the next one's even easier to get yeah that's that's it then month two you know it's a second loan a second company and then you know, it just keeps getting worse and worse. And then before I knew it, it was over £5,000 that had sort of racked up. And like I say, it was before they were regulated. So then they're kind of ringing up my office. um, They're ringing up the house and they're going, where's our money? You know, (laughs) if if you don't start paying, we're going to start turning up. Oh, wow. That must have been horrendous on top of everything else as well that's exactly right you know we're just going to start taking stuff and I was like shit like what am I actually going to do and I remember the one day it all just got too much I went outside I had my head in my hands my phone was ringing and I was like I picked it up and I wouldn't use you because I would have been sat at my desk otherwise and uh, it was this company and I was like I answered the phone I was like look I don't have any money to pay you with because yeah. I just thought, I just assumed it was like someone chasing me for money. And they were like, no, 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 um, we're here to help you. And I said, oh, what do you mean? And I said, you know, <laughs> I said, no one can help me. <laughs> oh. uh, they were like, well, we're from a company and you popped up on our database, you know, as like a high risk because you've got lots of different people that you owe money to. And they said, what we specialize in is we know quite a lot about payday loan companies and what they can and can't do we also know how to consolidate that debt and then you can pay in like an affordable amount each month to get yourself back on your feet and I was like you can do that and they were like yeah we can do that and we can get them to stop calling you because it's actually against the law for them to threaten you and I was like wow this is it was just like a weight off my shoulders yeah, it's a way out, isn't it? Part of me thinks, God, are they an offshoot? They target vulnerable people to get in debt. And then is there another company that then takes yeah. on these consolidating loans? But it doesn't matter at that point, does it? You just want the way out. Yeah, and they were so good. And oh, God. It took me about three years, but, you know, yeah. it all came out sort of good in the end. So, yeah, you know, that was like my first low point real low point where I was like you know suicidal thoughts that sort of thing so I I leave my apprenticeship like after a year and nine months of being there and I get my first job in the corporate world and it's at this massive software company and I'm working on the help desk as an IT like level one sort of advisor and you've got responsibilities then you know you've got uh, customers calling in and you know you've got several of them to juggle a day and initially it was quite stressful because you know I'm sort of learning on the job and all this sort of stuff 
you know, I was relying on my best friend at the time uh, to give me lifts to work because I didn't want to make my own way there. So I kind of had a, a lack of sort of freedom again there that I'd given myself. I mean, this job was actually in Worcester. I could have got like the bus or train there. But, um, you know, I was just really sort of frightened and ashamed. And How old were you at this point? This is when I was 20. I'm I'm really starting to feel quite depressed and, you know, like I'm really at the height of my anxiety and I was just in a really bad way. And I went to my dad's one weekend and um, he'd kind of been watching me like the whole day and I thought he was like angry at me or annoyed or whatever because he kept looking over at me. And I was just kind of like, I don't know, I, I don't even know what I was doing that day. I think I was just watching films back to back because I just wanted to like numb my brain. And uh, everyone went, everyone left because we had the whole family around. And my dad pulled me to one side. He was like, how are you doing? And I was like, yeah, I'm good. Like, I'm fine. He was like, yeah, but how are you actually doing? And I was like, "Um," and he said, I'll tell you what I think is going on. And he said, I don't know exactly what's going on with you. But he said, I can tell that something's different you're just not yourself, you know, anymore. Like he said, you're turning up to my house and I don't recognize this person anymore. You know, I'm just really worried about you. And, you know, I'm worried that you might do something to hurt yourself. And he said, I want you to know that I'm seeing a therapist at the moment. Cause he said, I've got problems that I need to address. And he said, I think you might have some problems as well. I think you should, you know, go and see a therapist. That sounds so um, so powerful. It's really emotional to hear that, to think that after all that time, that it, you know, how was it for you to have somebody really see you? It sounds like, because we all ask people, you, how are you? And people say, oh, I'm fine. But your dad really saw you, didn't they? How was it to be mm. seen like that? If I'm completely honest, at yeah. first, because it, it was such a sore spot that he'd poked, my initial reaction was like, screw you, like, get lost. Like, yeah. I didn't say that, but I just, I was really like, nothing's wrong. You know, you're like, you know, you're not right. You know, stop asking me these questions. Like, I just rejected him, like, flat out. But what happened is, so a month passes by. I'm seeing my dad. I'm, I'm at work. I'm just having the worst day. Mm-hmm. Like, at this point, I'd actually gotten myself back into debt. And, you know, I'm having a really shit day at work. I've got people chasing me up for money, ringing the help desk that I'm meant to work on. And they're ringing up, chasing me for money. There's no hiding from this now. Yeah. And I was like, oh, geez. So, yeah, I wasn't having a good mental health day either. And I just went outside. I had to just take a break. And I just remember, like, I either go home and just, do something like take my life or I do something about it. And I remember the conversation with my dad and then remember thinking, I've got to go see someone. This is an obvious sign that something is wrong. And I went on counseling directory. I just picked like a, someone who looks like they were friendly and looks like they were going to look after me. I called up and I went down the private practice route. Right, gosh. How did that feel, going to see the therapist for the first time? It was uh, it was really relieving an emotional experience. 
Wow. And, and that's amazing, isn't it? Considering, you know, and I think it's so important, you know, what your dad did, although it sounds like at that moment you couldn't hear it, he actually planted a seed and he set yeah. the foundation for something, didn't he? Oh, so definitely. It, it sounds like so important that if you think somebody's struggling that you kind of, you know, you can still plant a seed. I know I see some people come to see me in therapy and they're just not ready to hear stuff. And I kind of, I used to really struggle with that. And I used to say, no, you need to carry on having therapy. But sometimes you just set in the foundation and it's later that they come back or that, you know, they they go and see another therapist at a different point. It sounds what you what your dad did. God is was so kind of pivotal in all this, and you went from somebody who was really defensive to really kind of letting that land that maybe everything isn't all right, and maybe you could get help. Yeah. Which sounds like that saved your life. Yeah, yeah, it, it did. You know, every now and then, me and my dad have like really like emotional conversations, and I say to him like, you know, you saved my life that day. You know, yeah. that conversation. It might not have been a year or three years or five, but like eventually I would have done something because, you know, I felt like I had no other choice. I was backed into a corner. Yeah. I was like my own worst enemy. I wasn't serving myself because I just didn't understand what was going on. No, you were unwell. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was a really powerful experience. And, you know, the therapist that I've got, I mean, she she's like all time for me I think she's like she's brilliant I remember turning up to my first session and I just said to her I don't know who I am I feel like I'm just going through the motions but I don't know what I'm doing (laughs) you you know um and she was like okay I gave her a lot on that first session to deal with (laughs) did you you go through everything I went through everything which is amazing really isn't it from not telling anybody and really being alone with it, that you went to the first session, you just let it all out. Yeah. I, I just felt, I felt really comfortable with her. Yeah. She was like a very sort of maternal figure and she just seemed like she really wanted to help and she seemed like she really understood as well. And I'd been keeping all this to myself. So um, it all just kind of came out in like a floodgate. And um, within about a year... I was on top of my anxiety and PTSD uh-huh. and um, she taught me like management techniques. Yeah. Like the biggest thing for me was realizing that no one actually gives a crap about you. Like they just want to carry on about their day. You know, no one's out to get me and no one's like interested in me if I'm on a train or a bus, mm-hmm. like they just want to go to their destination and, I should be the same. Yeah. So focusing kind of more internally rather than externally and what other people and seeing other people as threats, you kind of started to shift that. Yeah. Complete paradigm shift. I mean, I I literally like flat out ignore people now, like when I'm on public transport, because like I'm in like my own bubble now and I still find it uncomfortable, but I can do it. If where I work, for example, if they told me you need to get a train down to London tomorrow, I could do it. What Do you remember the moment you kind of realised you had post-traumatic stress? Was that something you worked through with your therapist? I, I remember that because I was starting to get on top of it and I was starting to build up my confidence. And I said to her, right, like I'm ready to like cure this now and get rid of it. And yeah. I'm ready to, you know, I, I, I don't want whatever this thing is. She sat 
forward in her chair and leant forward and she was like, there's something you need to understand. And she said, I'm going to be very frank with you. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm ready to hear whatever you've got to say. And she said, um, what you've been experiencing since you were assaulted is most likely post-traumatic stress disorder and symptoms of anxiety. I said, yeah, isn't PTSD something that soldiers come back with after a war and stuff like that? And she said, well, it can be car crashes. It can be anything, you know, it's after trauma. You know, that's, that's literally what it means. So she said, that's what's happened. You've experienced trauma. Likely what has happened to you will be with you for the rest of your life. There is no cure. You know, you can manage this and learn to adapt to it. But she said, it's part of who you are now. Yeah, the experience, I think the symptoms you can recover from, but the exp- you can't eradicate the memory and that it, it yeah. will be a difficult moment in your life. But the symptoms you don't have to live with, the anxiety you don't have to live with, and the memory being distressing you don't have to live with, and flashbacks and nightmares, they can, they're all symptoms that can be treated. That's exactly right. And it was interesting because at first I was devastated. I was like... So I can learn to like manage this and lessen the symptoms and all this sort of stuff. But like, I can't actually ever eradicate it from who I am. And I think that's what I wanted to do. Like bury it. Like it was a body, you know, after some time reflecting, I accepted it as part of who I was. And that was a moment that needed to happen. And that was the moment then I was like embracing it. And I started talking to people about it, that I had it and, stuff like that because I wasn't ashamed of it anymore because I was like it's all right it's part of who I am and what when you started sharing it because that especially as a man do you feel that that's particularly difficult I do because um I don't like vulnerability yeah it's it's the reason I got into debt I didn't want to tell people that I was struggling so at first it was difficult but it's like anything it just gets less difficult over time and I mean I'd been sharing for a number of years in therapy anyway, so that helped me open up even more. But, like, I just found the more conversations I had, the more people were like, oh, my God, me as well. Yes, that's and I always find that. It's amazing, isn't it? We don't tell anybody, but the second we start talking, everybody says, me too. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting. I, I still talk about it now. Like, I struggle to talk about things that are happening for me now but like I can talk about things that have happened in the past very easily so now I'm I'm trying to really make it part of my character you know to develop that sort of humility to say you know what things aren't all right at the moment but they will be yeah because every time you do that you're helping somebody else do that as well aren't you as well Is is that what's led you to do a podcast? Yeah, because part of the reason, I mean, I've got a lot of different reasons why, really. One of the reasons is because when I started going to therapy, Mm. I was like, why isn't this information just available? Like, yes, yeah. I I had absolutely no idea. Like, those four years between 16 and 20, like, I just thought I was alone. And it just breaks my heart, the isolation. And yeah. If someone had turned around and gone, you know what, 
like you know, like my dad did. Like if someone had said, "This is a real thing. Mm-hmm. People have this. You know, people experience trauma, and they can't quite process that trauma, and as a result, it affects them in their personal life quite severely." If yeah. someone had turned around and said that to me, it would have made the world of a difference. Even though I hadn't treated it. Just the very fact of talking about it would have really helped me because I would have known that there was light at the end of the tunnel and I didn't. I, I went to uh, the doctors about it and this isn't the experience that most people have. I genuinely think people, you know, often have a positive experience when talking to doctors, especially now yeah. about mental yeah. health. You know, it was sort of two years after I was assaulted, I went to the doctors because I was just really, like, really struggling and I was depressed and, you know, I was feeling, like, suicidal. And I went to the doctors and um, this guy pulled up a chair next to me and I just said, you know, I just don't want to be here anymore. You know, I just don't know what I'm doing. Um, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm afraid to go outside. You know, I went through everything. He looked at me and said, I understand. And he leant over to his drawers, opened the drawers and pulled out a leaflet. Mm. And he gave me that leaflet. And he said, this place is in Malvern and they'll be able to help you out. And uh, I looked at the leaflet and I was like, I've just told you I'm frightened of going on public transport. Uh, was it miles away, this place? It's about 30 miles away from me. Oh, <laughs> and i was like have you listened to anything i've just said yeah so i left and i was like because that was it he gave me the leaflet and he was like you know see ya sort of thing and i was like ah it just made me want to do it even more Mm. and like i say i genuinely don't think you know because now i've had a lot of time to reflect on this and i genuinely don't think this is the experience that most people have but it was shit, you know, it was really like... I think the only thing that I think is that some, you know, GPs can, you know, the waiting list for CBT and therapy around, I don't know what they're like where you are, but they're 12 months. I mean, GPs are stark sometimes, you know. They haven't, they've got pills, but outside of that, therapy is just not that accessible. No. Sometimes, and that's... That's tough, isn't it? Sometimes so they partly because of that experience. Yeah. Started the podcast, so it could be like a resource that people could like look at and be like, right, this yeah. is my situation now, but let's listen to a guy who's actually been through it and come out the other side. Yeah. And it's like a bit of hope then, and yeah. it can help someone in between that gap between you know like because I've done episodes like explaining like what therapy is and the different types and stuff like that so people can do a bit of like they can school themselves up before taking the plunge yeah i did it as well because you know it's cathartic like for me and yeah i just want to help people really and it sounds like that kind of from feeling broken to kind of feeling that there is a way out how did you make that shift are you aware of kind of that pivot because I guess some people do feel broken, don't they? And they can't see the light. So I would say once I'd started managing and getting on top of like my symptoms and stuff like that, there were some deep personal issues that needed to be addressing. So yeah. like stuff that had happened in my childhood, which I had no idea was impacting me as well on a day-to-day basis. Right. So um, 
it's really it was really talking it through wasn't it yeah yeah it was it was doing the work it was yeah exactly what you've just said talking uh talking everything through like yeah. I've been going to therapy for six years now and it's really like unpacking all of that stuff yeah. and that's a lot and because I mean I've got a psychodynamic slash person-centered therapist right so, so can you tell us a bit about that that approach yeah sure so psychodynamic it typically a psychodynamic therapist will be interested in your past and they're also really really interested in your relationships as well because the relationships that happen in our lives are almost like uh, different threads and strands like a spider's web coming back to us at the center you know with different uh, relationships or dynamics there's like themes and concepts so like with your relationship with your parents for example that will often dictate you know the things that happen or the way you were raised will often dictate how you live your life for better or for worse like for example I don't know like if you were looked after quite well as a child and you were given everything that you need as you develop and you grow you learn to depend on a parent instead of uh, depending upon yourself so when you grow up and you become older you might have find that you've got a lower sense of self and self-esteem and confidence because you've had someone do things for you which some other people might be able to do for themselves so you feel like a lack of independence as well and when I started learning these different things you know because that's that's what it is often you know our therapists become our teachers as well teaching us how these different dynamics can have an impact on our lives you start learning you know about yourself and start understanding yourself you can then get to this kind of crossroads where you're like do I want that stuff anymore or do I want something different for myself and then you start building the next phase is like building the kind of person that you want to be because you know what it was like before and you've developed self-awareness by talking with someone in the room. And, you know, that's what it really is. It's getting it out and talking, you know, someone who is non-judgmental, yeah. they're empathetic towards you and compassionate. They just really want to understand you. And all of those kind of things come together and you start to develop a sense of self. And I think that was when things really started shifting for me when you started developing a real sense of self and who you are and how you've been shaped by your kind of past and your experiences and with that awareness then you have choices more choice of how you go forward that's a a really lovely explanation of it oh thank you and are you training now to be a therapist am I right yeah yeah Yeah. so Um, where are you up to with that I'll tell I'm about halfway trained I've got to do a foundation degree which effectively gets you your diploma that means you can practice but then you know I mean I've I've got years really in the grand scheme of things uh, to go so like I need to stop learning you never get there as a therapist and I think what (laughs) you kind of think I've cracked this I know what I'm doing you've probably not been a very good therapist (laughs) and I'm not I had somebody I'm not that academic and I've picked something that I've never stopped studying in but that that's the work I just decided that, you know, I was in a session with my therapist and we were looking at the future and she was like, because I basically said to her, like, I'm 
I'm done with the corporate world. Like, you know, that's the world that my dad works in. That doesn't mean that I need to do that. So I was like, hmm, what shall I go into? She said, if you don't mind, you're very good with people. So whatever you do with regards to your career, it has to be to do with people. Because you clearly just, you know, love it. And I was like, yeah, that's a good point. I've never really thought about that. And then I was sat there for a minute and we were both silent. And then I said, yeah, but it's not as if you can get a job, like, just talking to people, though. (laughs) (laughs) fantastic <laughs> and then you looked across <laughs> yeah <laughs> we both like burst out laughing we were like crying <laughs> oh, wow <laughs> and um i said to her i want to be a therapist like you and uh we were we were laughing so much <laughs> we still laugh now about it yeah and she was absolutely over the moon oh um, i bet what an absolute amazing outcome that is (laughs) so I started my training I think it was literally a week after that conversation I signed up for college because I was just once I knew I knew that was it it was like it's happening and yeah I started my training I went through the introduction course which was 12 weeks then I did my NCFE or NCEF I can't remember which way around it is is this for person-centred or are you doing the psychodynamic? It's a bit of everything. So I guess you call it the integrative approach. So when I was in college, they literally just, they give you a little bit of everything. And then you can choose to specialise when you go to uni um, or you can carry on being quite broad and, you know, become integrative. So for university, I'm looking at doing integrative because um, I quite like being able to cater the therapy for the person that comes in the room. Yeah, you have no choice. I was just going to say that actually, you know, I've done CBT, but then I've done compassion-focused therapy and EMDR, and you end up you end up looking a lot broader because nobody comes in very specific. That You know, we're all so beautifully unique, aren't we, and different and diverse. Yeah. So you do end up being becoming quite interested anywhere. I'd say I'm, I'm mainly CBT, but I definitely draw from other therapies and actually when you start kind of learning and doing the research all the different therapies have all pinched off each other so you see the similarities between them all so how exciting it's just been an amazing journey I mean I still go to therapy now and then my training has just really helped me understand my my mind and also just be a better communicator as well with people like the the listening skills the empathy like they're just second to none. Like I wish everyone would go through the training, even yes. if um, they didn't become therapists, you know, just to get a really great understanding of who they are as a person. Yeah, yeah, it's so important, isn't it? It's the kind of most neglected aspect of what we learn at school and everywhere, isn't it? Our minds and how they work. Yeah, that's what we use to live our lives through, our minds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's our like operating system. It's our machine. Like, <laughs> it's <laughs> crazy that we don't address it. Busy with our bodies and ignoring our operating system. Yeah. So, but hopefully that's all changing. Can I just ask you as well what um what are some of the things you've found most helpful for your mental health? You know, kind of strategies that you put in place for your mental health now. Yeah, I mean, you do I'll talk about well. something I know we're both passionate about, which is journaling. Absolutely, yes, fantastic. Like, I don't actually really like journaling. 
because um i think of it like a mirror of insecurities because you look back and you know you look at the love handles or you know you look at like your thighs and you're not really happy that there's extra weight there or whatever and it, it can make you sad initially because you know you can't hide away from it when you're writing out your journal yeah. I encourage people to be as truthful and as honest as possible and it can be quite painful to address that but now I sort of think of it as it's upfront pain because you're addressing this now instead of letting it manifest on its own later yeah. in a way that you can't control yeah and that's what's been most important in your kind of journey was the moment that instead of keeping it in you started sharing that sounds like the kind of pivotal point and if we can't speak it out journaling is another way isn't it a processing of getting it out processing what's going on acknowledging how you feel and what you're experiencing so you can then think what do I need and what does this emotion need or what I'm going through needs so but it is painful I know I can be if I um journal in that kind of way if I'm going through a tough time I can want to be very avoidant of it and just bury my hand in the sand I, I journal a little bit every every night oh wow oh so you're really committed to it you yeah, uh... only, it's only very brief though I mean and I started journaling when I um was diagnosed with the underactive thyroid to kind of understand my symptoms I think I felt very kind of broken and it was at the point I thought I've instead of well the NHS just couldn't fix me and then I thought I've got to fix myself and really went for it it was it was much broader but now I just keep it up and I'm start and I kind of play around with it a little bit so it's it's really kind of just focusing on how I'm feeling emotionally bits about what I've done in the day and stuff and I can see in my diary kind of because I've been doing it for a few years now what was happening last year and the year before and stuff and I find it really fascinating it's now become a really useful kind of kind of book for me to kind of act mm. on but but I, I do think it helps. Yeah, it just, and just um, 10 minutes. I think I couldn't do kind of, well, even five minutes or 30 seconds. And I just kind of rate my mood every day as well. I don't know why I do that. I've been doing that, I think, since I was th- had my thyroid issue, kind of rate my mood and kind of think about what I'm doing. So you can see your fluctuations in your mood and how you're feeling and what you're doing. And it's a good, sometimes I can totally overwork. So I can see that starting to play out in my, ju- in my journal. So right. I can put things in place a little bit sooner that I need to have a lazy weekend or yeah. give a bit of time before that's I head um, out. I think that's really smart what you do. I think um, I think I might try and enhance my journaling like that because yeah. I tend to do mine, I'll either do it once a week or once a month. And I do a big one then, you know, I'll do like a, I think that's why I I tend not to do it so much because I'm like, oh, I know I'm going to end up writing War and Peace. But (laughs) I did like little like daily ones. Maybe that would, um, that'd be really powerful. But you see, maybe I should do now and again what you do, because it sounds like you really get into the zone and really kind of end, you know, kind of really spend some time with yourself. Whereas I'm probably being a little bit avoidant still just going, you know doing it so briefly so maybe it's what we're kind of saying is that a mix of the both is probably good isn't it yeah it's interesting we're learning off each other (laughs) yeah Yeah. is there anything else you do for your kind of mental health yeah yeah so like uh today for example today because it's sunday um it's a really great day to be talking to me because um the weekend i really try and dedicate to either family time or me time like that's it 
So, for example, today, like before coming on here, I went for a walk around the woods. I don't know what it is. And this is where you got to be like self-aware. you got to do what makes you happy. But being around like all that nature and like seeing the trees and stuff and I don't know, just going for a walk. I just really like it. It just really relaxes me. And then I went to, there's a little coffee shop near the woods that I go to. I grabbed a mocha and a cookie and I sat there for five minutes, people watching. And then I got in my car, drove down the sort of country lanes instead of going on the main roads. I pulled up and I was like, just really relaxed. And I try and do that every weekend if I can. And I like going to the cinema on my own as well. You know, because the more honest I am with myself in my journals and through my therapy and stuff like that, the more that I found that like I liked myself. When you like yourself, you want to, you don't mind spending time on your own. You know, you no longer crave that sort of time with people because you're more than happy to spend it on your own because you don't mind your own company. I started going to the cinema on my own and because I don't have to think about anything, I can just sit and watch a film and just enjoy the moment. You know, it's like my happy place. I love it. Oh, lovely. I know in in the CBT journal that I've put together, the one of the first quotes in it is that the relationship we have with ourselves is the most important relationship we have in our lives. And I really kind of believe that. And that's that's, that's nice what you've just said. It kind of highlights how important it is that our relationship with ourselves. Yeah, I think it's right that it is right at the start of the CBT journal. Um, I love I love that you've done that. Fantastic. Well, I think that's a lovely place to end the podcast on the episode, although I don't want to stop chatting. I think I could chat yeah. for hours. <laughs> so um, how will people, if they want to kind of find you, where do they go to find you? So you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. So my Instagram handle is dudale92. Yeah. And on Twitter, it's at knowyourselfpod. And that's because my podcast is called Know Yourself. And um, you can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor, and lots of other places as well. Fantastic. And I shall put links to all those handles and everything underneath this episode. And I look forward to hopefully speaking to you very soon. Take care, Dan. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure being on and you've been awesome. Thank you.